At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a board gaming podcast about board games. And I'm here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I am very well, Walker. How are you? Good. Well, on this podcast, we talk about board games. And we talk about board games we played this week. And then we talk about a big board game. After we talk about the news about board games. And the big big board game we're going to talk about this week is Imperial 2030. It's an older game, but a goodie as they say. And talking about older and newer, 2019 is over, Mark. Thank now, goodness. Thank goodness. And now we can get into the newer games because that's what we're all about. Yes. Everything published in 2019 or earlier is to be burned. Hot garbage. Just not worth paying any attention to. All hot garbage. Anything that come 2020, it's going to be a great year. Forget all that old stuff. Throw it out. Definitely Make- all the ones in 2020 are going to be amazing. Make room forward. for the new stuff. Mariposas is definitely going to be the best new game ever. Yes. <laughs> of course it is. It's the new butterfly game. It's the new butterfly game. And then the old butterfly game, the ancient one released in 2019, will be entirely obsolete. Exactly. This is great. I'm going to... So much simplicity and streamlining. Let's just sway, segue that into the games that we played this week. I got to play Papillion again, Mark, and I got to play with more than just two players. Okay. Can, can we pause for a moment? No. Are you sure it's Papillion? No. Okay. I, I, since you I'm, I'm you on board with calling it Papillion. Well, we I'm call 100% it, on board with that. We can that. call it Pap, the new the butterfly game. Until this new <laughs> one can't... comes out. <laughs> All right. Papillion. You played Papillion. I played Papillion with more than just two players. How did it go? I will never play it two player again. It is much, much better at multiple players because like we talked about, you're actually bidding for the turn order. You're you're managing your resources, whereas in two players, you're just, you know, collecting tiles and putting them down and, and massing the flowers out. In Papillion, you're collecting nectar, Mark, with your butterflies. It's sort of like an area majority game where you're carcassoning your little flower beds and your little fields. And whenever you make a f- complete a field, you get to put butterflies on these fantastic looking three dimensional flower stacks. And it's just a fantastic looking game. Everyone who played it enjoyed it. The whole reason I got it was because my fiance loves butterflies and I finally got to play it with her and she loved it. So it's a win-win for me. I would very much like to try it with three or four players because as we commented, there are two additional elements, not just the bidding for turn order, but with three or four players, there's actually a choice about where you put your butterflies as opposed to them just all going into a pile. And that gives you the sliver, the barest sliver of functionality to those beautiful flower stands. And I think that that would just elevate the entire experience past any reason. Yeah, and it's very disappointing that they really, I feel, dropped the ball with the two-player experience. Because like you said, you cut the flowers in half and the fact that there's no competing for turn order other than, you know, taking a hit and taking the gnome piece in order to change player order. But anyway, that is Papillion. It is by J.B. Howell, who put out a ton of games last year. So we're not going to talk about that anymore. So he doesn't matter anymore. We're not going to talk about that anymore. And Colossal Games, everyone's favorite game publisher. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
I was in the mood for some solo gaming, and so I pulled out Talon. We reviewed Talon shortly after the expansion Talon 1000 was released, and I commented that although the full-blown solo system in Talon was a little bit much to handle, the AI is rather cumbersome, they did a, a marvelous halfway measure somewhere between the tendency of old-school wargamers to happily play any game solitaire, regardless of how much doublethink was involved, and the Euro tendency to create full-fledged Otoma. And so, in this case, what they had was a solitaire fleet that was sub required substantially less upkeep, Talon being the starship battle game put up by GMT. And so they made a fleet that was essentially easy to run solo. A lot of the key choices about power management and so forth were taken away, leaving the solo player to do all those fun decisions about things like power management, for example. And it's called Talon 1000 because that's the number of different fleets that you can randomly generate with the built-in system. And I have to say, despite the fact that I'm a historical wargamer at heart in many ways, I do really appreciate it when a wargame, or even a non-wargame like Talon, being that it has a science fiction theme, gives you an incredibly robust make-a-scenario system. I am so weak to those incredibly comprehensive systems. The, the the gold standard is probably still Chad Jensen's Combat Commander. The the variety of different forces that you can deploy and combat situations you can encounter is truly dizzying. But when I approach a game like Talon that's scenario-based, I often feel frustrated because I want to skip ahead to the scenarios where you get to play with the cool things. I don't want to play with the training wheels, and I want to wonder when when is it really going to start? And with Talon, the answer is around scenario 3 or 4 or 5-ish. But with Talon 1000, you can just generate a random force and you're off, off to go. The game I played was particularly fun because I got to play with two dreadnoughts, which was absurd. And I got to play the side that I never get to play. Everybody that I've introduced Talon to, some people have liked it, some people like Walker have liked it less, they've all made me play the Earthlings. All of them. I don't know why. Well, because the other race is like Klingon, evil looking, and who doesn't want to, who like, you? I can play boring humans or I can play cool Klingons. It's always going to be the Klingons. So self-hating Terrans... I, are all the people that I've been playing with. And so I finally got to play a sustained game from start to finish as the Talon. Well, actually, it wasn't my first time, but it felt like my first time because of how rarely I get to do it. So I got to use all their cool toys and all their afterburners. It was great. I had a blast. I love the physicality of how Talon manages information load. I'd forgotten how sparse the component set is because in my head, which is act entirely accurate, Talon is a kind of sprawling game where you're managing these cumbersome behemoths that have power systems and subsystems to manage and all these other considerations to do, and they have these big turn radii. But ultimately, it's so smooth and easy because almost all of the information is written on the actual chit. And again, to compare it to Combat Commander, which is, which is a game to which it is utterly unsimilar, Combat Commander, you're going to have a more traditional wargame experience of chits everywhere, chits attract this and that and the other thing, and chits sprawling all over the place. But in Talon, it's almost all written in dry erase marker on the starship. Anyway, I really enjoy Talon. I am somewhat disappointed that I have not been able to find more local opponents, but by virtue of this, I am ever so glad that the solo system exists, and I had a very, very, very good time, and indeed, almost all of my time was spent making decisions about how to manage my ship. Almost no time was spent managing decisions for my solo AI opponent. So, a really, really successful iteration of that. I had a great time with Talon from GNT Games. I'll go to my solo experience. Nice little segue. I... Mark, this game called On Mars has got a little bit of buzz and I got my hands on a copy because I really wanted to see what it was all about. Maybe an on Mar maybe a Mars game that people like and it looked nice and complicated and I feel maybe it goes over the top being complicated. You see it has a I find that impossible it to believe of a Tal Lacerda game that went over the top for complexity. Not at all. It only has a 17 step board setup. Unprecedented. And then once you go through that, then there's a 14 step player setup. And then once you all got that, you can go to bed because it's probably too late to start playing. But anyway, that being all said, after I got all of this stuff set up and worked through a couple of turns, I just made some some inner feelings came present, Mark. And I feel as though there are... Let me guess. Let me guess. A red haze fell over your vision. And when you were next conscious, the room was full of blood and torn up board game components. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> There are there are board games out there that have many different actions to choose from, and the puzzle is to figure out, you know, what order to take those actions or what's the best way to take actions. And then there's games that have very minimal actions, like a Tigris Euphrates, where where the, the actions are minimalistic, but what you do with those actions are what matters. And I feel as though I, I tend to lead 
enjoy those games a lot more than the puzzly, here's all the actions, find the best way to do it, and then work your way through it type thing, where it's like, this is what you sort of can do, and, you know, get in there and figure out, you know, clever and interesting ways to manipulate those bare actions. Well, it's the barrier between you as a player and the game state, right? The smoother the systems are, often, not always, but often it's just less of a barrier to figure out, well, how do I manipulate the game state? And then it's all about jockeying and, and using stra- strategy to actually do clever plays rather than victory necessarily going to the one person who can properly hold in their head the victory conditions and or the way those are influenced by the dizzying array of options that you have in front of you. That being said, I didn't play a whole game, but it just seemed odd that there there's hard doesn't it doesn't seem like there's going to be much player interaction. And where there does seem there might be player interaction because there's these texts that you can take, you might be able to take these texts before somebody else does, but that doesn't matter because if you have a tech and you advance it, then everybody else gets to use that tech. I know, wrap your head around that because now what am I supposed to be looking at everyone's board? It's like I want to do this action, how well can I do it? Well, let me just check everyone's board to see oh my yeah it seemed odd so anyway that was on mars by like you said Vito lacerda and i'm very anxious to give it a full try with you know uh, all the players to see if any of these things come about and change my mind but we'll see well listeners have been asking that we give it a full treatment and so i will probably be a part of that game when and if it happens and we'll see if this is the one that changes our minds about Vital lacerda or not Although you you like him a lot more than I do by virtue of your enthusiasm for Kanban. I haven't tried Kanban, so... That, yeah, and but he, he did Lisboa, which is very... It was very Lisboa. And, and it was yes. a, a whole lot of Lisboa, that's for it sure. It was a whole lot of Lisboa. A whole lot of Lisboa. Played Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong on the topic of heavy, dense, complicated, long games. Played it twice back-to-back. There were some new players around, and so we decided to give Deception a go. And I had a great time. It was very fun. We played once with the Accomplice and once without. So the bare bones version and then the slightly more complicated version. Of course, we played with the swag approved mini game of discovering the best band name that was present. And ultimately, it was one of those situations that really highlighted Deception's failures, but at the same time, I couldn't really hold it against it. Namely, that the tiles that the forensic investigator pulled were just not helpful. The the rules as written, for what it's worth in Deception, is every round you get to pull a new tile, and that gives some new information into the system, an ability to clue people into what's going on. And in the, the rules as written, there are these events, and the events, generally speaking, tend to be very unhelpful. And so all the people that we play with locally have collectively decided to bury the events. We don't play with events. We only just play with new information entering the system. But even then, a lot of them are just weird. And so at the best of times, what this does is it encourages lateral thinking and really, really, truly creative interpretations. And those moments where a forensic investigator is able to make that reach and then someone else at the table is able to make that reach with them and as a further miraculous step, able to convince the rest of the table to join them in that leap of logic. Those are truly inspiring. But then you have the slightly less enthusiastic ones where, well, we've got a whole bunch of clues for one element and no idea what to do with the second. And that can be a little bit frustrating. But even in those contexts, by virtue of its approachable theme, by virtue of its quick playtime, by virtue of the fact that it just encourages everyone to participate all the time, talking about various associations they can make, about various words and various pictures, Deception Murder in Hong Kong is still very, very good just not necessarily one that you can take super, super seriously. And so it was uh, much appreciated by the new players, and the experienced players were more than happy to give it a go again, and that was our recent experience with Deception Murder in Hong Kong. I love these easy segues, Mark. Speaking of, like, really interesting party games, I got to play a game called Principal Dilemma, and it's by someone called Joe Tarnowski, and it's self-published. It was a, it was a Kickstarter that he put out, and what it does is it, it uh, proposes this moral dilemma, So I read this moral dilemma to the next player, and then it gives them two choices. Like you find a, you know, a a can, let's just say you find a a candy on the side of the road. Do you find its owner or do you eat it yourself? You know, just stuff like that. Wait a minute. (laughs) I have some questions. That was not one of, that was not one of the things. Let's hope not. I'm just saying. Do you eat the garbage candy or do you try to repatriate the garbage candy by finding the candy's original owner so that they can eat the garbage candy? Okay, let's make it a sports car. You find a sports car running on a deserted road. I also have more questions. <laughs> anyway, so it gives you these options. So you choose one of the options, and everyone else has this hand of five cards or so that have all these weird, you know, 
offshoots that will change that you need to use to change the per- person's mind. So this person decides that they're going to jump in the sports car and drive away, you know, leaving, you know, their old car there and not worrying about it. So, you know, I might have a hand of cards that says, you know, aliens or family member or, and then I get to propose some sort of story using this keyword or whatever, and to try to change their mind, say, oh, that was it actually a bad idea that maybe I would have gone the other way as well. It's a very fun game. It's much like, was it, I was trying to, I was going to ask you at the beginning, but was it called Ye Overlord? There was an old... There's a game called I Dark Overlord. I Dark Overlord. So never played it though. It gave me a very much feel. I, I uh, Dark Overlord was, I bl- it was so long ago I played it, so I'm sorry, I'm going to get this totally wrong. But what it is, is everyone's given a hand of cards like that with all these words, and you're proposing this crazy mad scheme, and you play a card and add to the scheme, and the next person adds to the scheme, you go around, and it's that sort of game. So it's this sort of thing where you invent this crazy story. But it also, it, it's not for all players, for sure. You have to have a very, you know, you know, inventive or storytelling type atmosphere. Improv. Like, if you're very good at improv, then you would love this game. No, but... That's my version of yes and. Gotcha. I'm not very good at improv. Well, actually, no. I was pretty good when I, back when I was an actor. So Principal Dilemma was actually my game. I was the one that brought it. I played it for a while before you did. And I have to say, I was very disappointed by it. I, I don't know, necessarily know that I was expecting it to work, but it was promising to be a way to explore people's moral intuitions and moral standards. By, as you say, presenting this sort of series of scenarios by building a casuistry and people would give a justification for why they would do a certain thing and then you test that. And I was possibly hoping that this was going to be some of the, some of the better moments actually. And this is a bit of a reach, but it, it's, it's my primary gaming experience of something like Durant's, because as I've said before, Durant's is a role-playing game about testing, testing people's principles. You make all these characters, you say what their principles are, and then there's, scenario in the story is about testing those principles and seeing how far they'll go before they'll break or if they will break. And I was hoping the principal dilemma would be an, an ability to explore that because I can tell you that from my experience studying moral philosophy, there's a lot of really interesting thought experiments and possible test cases. And there's some philosophers who exist exclusively to argue via test cases and by tweaking test cases. Anybody who's read any paper by Judith Jarvis Thompson knows that she is extremely good at coming up with very interesting scenarios and then saying, well, you might think your answer to the scenario is based on this feature, but what if I gave you this other scenario, which is identical, except for this possible change? She, Her paper on the trolley problem is perhaps the most famous. She didn't invent it, but, but she sort of became associated with it. Anyway, here are my problems with Principal Dilemma. Number one, this is perhaps not terribly surprising, but... The scenarios varied wildly in terms of quality. A number of them, like, for example, you know, your candy scenario wasn't actually one of the scenarios, but my problem, I don't like it when people present moral problems when they are actually just problems of self-interest. Presenting you a scenario and the actual question isn't what is the right thing to do, but rather the actual question is what suits your best interest, your self-interest better. Now, there are some moral systems where that's the same, but by and large, that's not the same issue. And one of the scenarios I encountered was very much just sort of, what do you think is the more clever way to approach the situation to maximize your standing? And it's like, that's not an interesting question to me. I didn't. That's not what I signed on for. There were a couple of scenarios that were not good in mixed company, probably not best with people that you've just met. That's okay. You can just burn them and move, move along. That's all right. But the other thing that was brought to the fore, and I'd completely forgotten about this, actually, is that some people just don't deal with hypotheticals well at all. They don't have the mindset for it. They're not inclined. And this is not a question of intelligence. This is just a question of perspective. And I've encountered over the course of my life a lot of people who just refuse to accept the bounds of hypothetical scenarios. So you set up the hypothetical and you say, okay, well, this is the situation. They say, I don't think this is plausible. I'm going to rewrite it now. It's like, well, well, wait, okay. In this case, the card that says here what the scenario is, you don't get to just say that I'm rewriting the story from scratch. It's like, well, I don't think that makes sense. This is the thing that makes sense to me. It's like, well, okay, uh, fine. And these people are not very easy to deal with if you want to argue by hypothetical or if you want to have a game based on hypotheticals because they've got their way of approaching things and they're not going to budge. And that's fine, I guess, but it tends to make the conceit of the game fall apart in those people's presences. Compare that, for example, to a game like Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong, another party game, another light game, a very accessible game, where, despite the fact that it is about murder, (laughs) you don't have to worry about playing it with strangers, and you don't have a whole bunch of people saying, wait, why is the forensic investigator mute? This game doesn't make sense to me. I'm rewriting it. They can talk now. You know, there's some things that people are willing to accept and some things that people are not willing to accept. And over the course of a game 
same principal dilemma. I had two people fundamentally just flatly refuse to accept the terms of the thought experiments presented. I don't know how much that that is the game's fault and how much of those it is those two people's fault, but I will say that it made the game feel very rickety, and then at a moment, the entire shared social contract that we have was going to fall apart. So I I don't know that I'll be going back to Principal Dilemma for those reasons. It is, doesn't seem like it's focused on the kind of experience that it was presented as. This is not about testing moral intuitions and moral storytelling. It seemed more sliding over to the scale of more fuzzy things, where it's more about playing to the judge, think, you know, more of the apples-to-apples apples vein. And that didn't do it for me. That's not what I was looking for, and I didn't enjoy that aspect of it. I'm thinking the fact that Maybe it was sort of could have been the atmosphere as well because it's like a game night. People there for lighter stuff, and the fact that it's more presented in a in a fun, silly way. Like some of the cards, like I said, are aliens or or silly things. So it definitely, I can see, like you said, where you could get into this like deep moral conflict, right? And I can see where that could be present. You had the right number of cards and the right people. I think that would happen, especially you know even the time limit that you're under. You don't feel as though you have you can contribute that much and get it into that type of atmosphere you know what i mean you're absolutely right and I, and and just to be very clear as a storytelling game which is how you've described it it did have its moments and indeed the most successful play of the game that i made and this is just an example of the kind of cards that are present there was some scenario about how you had to do group work in university with someone who was an utter flake and they were flaking out on their responsibilities and so the question was do you do all their work for them or do you blow them off to and, and and do something else and i'm like this is just about how to get through a class this isn't a moral question at all and the way i quote unquote won the round was by playing a card that says you're in a cartoon universe so what you can do is you can build one of those elaborate traps where a box is propped up on a stick, uh, lure them under with a ham sandwich or something, and then spring the trap and then force them to do their work while they're in the trap. That's a thing. It's yeah. certainly not about principles, and it's certainly not about any kind of moral reasoning, and it's certainly not about testing anyone's standards or judgments or, or anything. It's just the game literally presented, here is a practical problem, and I said, you're in a cartoon world, here's a fantastical solution to your problem so you can have your cake and eat it too, and they said, okay, and that's what happened. So... That's the experience that I had, and it is absolutely yeah. not what I wanted. Mine slightly went different, where they didn't object to the scenario. When it came to the person's problem to try to change the mind, they simply would just play the card and read what the card said. And that then that was the response. And so it sort of fell out that part. That yeah, way. exactly. So I, I think we both agree that Principal Dilemma, whatever its strengths or weaknesses are, it is very much in the more storytelling genre than it is about anything else. 100%. And that was Principal Dilemma. I got to play a game called Las Vegas Quarter Pound. Well, that's what we call it here. Uh, do you know what they call it in Europe? No. What do they call it in Europe? Well, they got the metric system. They don't know what a quarter oh, pounder is. They call true. it Las Vegas Royale. Ooh. And this is a sort of reprint redevelopment of a game called Las Vegas put out by Rudiger Dorn and published under Alia. I didn't play it when it came out despite my enthusiasm for Rudiger Dorn because I kind of sort of dismissed Alia as the uh, personal imprint of Stefan Feld. Uh, starting about 10 years ago, and so I haven't really been paying attention to their output. And given my general lack of enthusiasm about Istanbul, I haven't been paying too much attention to Rudiger Dorn's lighter output recently. But I will say this, it's an incredibly light dice game. You throw all your dice, and then you choose a number that is showing on the dice, and you allocate your dice to a certain place. And then later on, that place has an area majority contest based on how many dice are placed there. And that's more or less it. There's there's some other stuff there. You know, you pay chips to pass your turn and say, I don't like the results of this roll. I'll, I'll go in later. There's some special powers to activate. There's some weird rules of ties. There's, there's some other stuff. But fundamentally, that's it. And so when I read that that was fundamentally the game, I'm like, this is not going to... This is This is... There's nothing here, but it's one of those instances where an expert Eurogame designer can make a game out of close to nothing. This was very reminiscent of some of Rainer Knizia's more minimalistic designs, especially with dice. He's a master at that, too. And I have to say, this was a very, very, very pleasant experience. I enjoyed Las Vegas Royale a great deal. It is just a light dice game, but it's extremely accessible. There are issues of timing, though. There's issues of tempo. There's issues of competition in area majority, and I'm weak to area majority. And so this is just a different way for area majority pieces to enter the system. And the special powers are fun to play. Some of them in involve little Vegas-style minigames, where you basically just roll dice to get money and that's okay so long as you approach it with, with the mindset of this is a game about las vegas we're going to roll some dice to win some money that part's okay but the rest of it is surprisingly solid i really enjoyed las vegas royale and i'm probably going to keep it in rotation for my uh my, my filler needs and certainly for my gaming needs of mixed company where i know that some of the people there can't handle many of the rules speaking about dice games i got to play sushi roll which is much like sushi go but with dice 
One would think, Mark, that we actually set this up. These like segues are, are ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, moving along. If you thought to yourself, I enjoy Sushi Go, but need something even simpler, <laughs> this is Sushi Roll. But that being said, I don't want to take away from it. It was still incredibly fun because what you're doing is you're rolling the dice, choosing one, passing it along, and then everyone rolls the dice again and, and picks dice. And they're fantastically cute dice. They all have the little pictures of the sushi. And it plays very much like the card game where you're collecting sets, except now these are dice. But what, what it does let you do is see what's coming along and you get to, there's two ways to manipulate the dice. You can play these chopsticks, which lets you take someone else's die and lets you give, you know, one, one of your dice to them. So you can sort of set up for your next turn because you know, you're going to get the next person's dice. So you can take one of theirs, add the color that you need from your pool that didn't roll the right die into their pool. And now you're going to get it and you'll get a chance to roll what you actually needed. So there's two ways to manipulate dice. I thought it was a fantastic quick game. I think I played it like 14 times over the past two days because it plays so quickly and everyone that played it enjoyed it and the components are really nice and that is Sushi Go. It's a game by Phil Walker Harding and it comes out by Game Right. Oh, a Baron Park fame. Yes. And what's the player count on Sushi uh, Sushi Roll? You can play five players. Okay, so it's significantly smaller than say Sushi Go Party which is a very, very large number game. All right. Would, would I like it? Is it actually a game or is it just a, a fun waste of time? No, I think I think there is a game there. Like I said, the way you can manipulate dice and take dice and re-roll, you can sort of like look around the table at the beginning of the turn. You can see the colors that are out there because they're all like sort of classified into different colors. Like the the one where you, if you have the most of something, they're red and the, the ones that you can. And there's a, a cool way that you can sort of uh, gamble too. You there's like the wasabi, you can take it in hopes that you're going to get a white dice later that has to go on top. So you can say, I'm going to take this next round, this round and hoping, you know, I'm going to get it paid off later. And, and it's like, it's sort of like, you know, like Quacks of Quiglinburg where, you know, you're, you're rolling all this big mitt full of dice and you're just taking a chance and you're rolling them out and trying to get what you need. It's fun, fast, silly game. And that's Sushi Roll. I played another couple sessions of Cthulhu Death May Die, and this time without Walker, so we actually got to play the full game and he, without him piecing out on us. And I still enjoy Cthulhu Death May Die. I stand by my observation that it is surprisingly good, given all the shortcomings you might have imagining its pedigree or its theme. But it is one of those instances where you have to be very careful about letting the threats get out of hand. For a game of its weight, you actually have to pay very close attention to where the monsters are going and where they're coming from. Because unlike many other games of this ilk, and one of the reasons why Cthulhu Death May Die is relatively quick, the monsters don't all activate every turn. They're only activated when a card says they activate. So complacency can set in, and I've now seen a number of sessions go from everything is going fine to... Someone has been murdered and their torso is missing, and therefore the game is over in a hot second. And when you're in the middle of it, it can seem like it's just bad luck of the draw. And sometimes that is indeed what happened. But usually it's a question of don't ever end your space one space adjacent to something that can kill you. And that can rule out large sections of the map. So you need to be very, very careful about exercising crowd control. But it's one of those things where... The concern is vaguely distant. In point of fact, this is just more of a psychological thing than anything else. If you're told to spawn a monster and there are no figures of that monster left, simply nothing happens. You don't get penalized. So there's this weird, perverse incentive to let all the figures be standing out of the map and thinking that you're gaming the system. It's like, oh, we can't spawn any cultists anymore because there's no cultists in the supply. We must be winning. We must be winning. We're much smarter than this stupid game. Oh, wait, why are there five cultists in my space and why am I now getting attacked for 10 damage? That's not good. So... I don't know whether this is a question of the mechanics not tying together quite in the way you might expect, or this a game, uh, this being an instance of Cthulhu Death May Die having more depth than it first appears. Maybe a little bit of both. But suffice to say that I'm enjoying it, I'm continuing to enjoy its modularity. All the scenarios, although they all amount to more or less the same thing, they feel sufficiently different to give you enough flavor to feel that the scenarios are different. And the different great old ones do operate fundamentally differently by virtue of what monsters they involve in the scenario and so forth. So the different combinations are still cool. Playing with different characters is neat. And although you are always on the press, you can always be on the precipice of death. That's I think a feature rather than a bug. All things considered, you just have to be careful and remember that hey, uh, humans are squishy and uh, giant clawed monsters from the netherworld are not. So keep that in mind. And so that's been my continuing experience with Cthulhu Death May Die. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
Mark, there was a fantastic game a while ago called Clash of Cultures. It was a fantastic sort of Civ tableau building game and uh, expansion that came out for it that everybody wanted. And WizKids is bringing it back out again. So everyone is excited. I'm kind of excited because it will be back out in circulation. People will want to play it. I still have mine. And this one will come with the expansion or expansions, I guess, included. There was like a little mini Aztec expansion. So this will have it all. So something to look forward to. Clash of Cultures by WizKids. Some people are expressing dubiousness at the fact that WizKids is the one pulling it out. WizKids has a sort of dodgy history even to this day with respect to quality control and generally speaking quality of their components. But as we've commented a number of times before, ever since Zev Slushinger started working for them, they've been putting out interesting titles and they've been putting out consistently quality titles. They put out things like Flotilla. They put out things like Sidereal Confluence, very unique sorts of games that they would not have put out before he started working there. Yeah. To say nothing of the only game that matters, still Team Flex. Yeah, it's I find I found it very odd as well because I I saw it come up on my feed. I clicked on it. I read down through the comments, and it was nothing but hate for WizKids. And I just I was sort of I was blown away. I didn't really understand the hate. I didn't I I didn't have you know I don't have very big experience with it, so I just didn't. Some people have mixed results dealing with their customer support. They kind of dropped the ball in terms of component quality of Mage Knight, and. Generally speaking, there's a dubiousness in the market as to whenever WizKids is charging a premium cost for a product because they haven't yet shown the ability to produce a premium quality in terms of true. components product. Yeah, that's true. That they, and the yeah. MSRP of the new Clash of Cultures is going to be 140 American dollars. Yes. Which is a fair number of dollars. So I think that may be fueling some of some of the dubiousness. So when I went to Gen Con, I thought the game of the con was Grimslingers. Grimslingers was written, designed, and illustrated by Stephen Gibson. And it didn't get a lot of appreciation elsewhere in the market on the basis of its rules allegedly being unclear, although I never really had a problem with that. But it had absolutely dropped-dead gorgeous art, a very well-realized and unique theme. And as far as card-battling games go, I thought it was it was pretty good as far as the as uh, elaborated rock-paper-scissors goes which I sometimes have some enthusiasm for. Stephen Gibson, the author, has now announced that he has gotten the rights to his work and his universe from the original publisher, which is, say, Greenbrier Games, and he's intending to kickstart Grimslingers 2 sometime in March of this year, he hopes. Uh, he wants it to be a much more pick-up and accessible game. His original intention was to make something that was very, very, very quick and accessible, and that's not exactly what he put out. Instead, what he put out was a game of tremendous value, a small box game that nonetheless had a solo campaign in it and all manner of interesting stuff. So he's, he's trying to have a little more focused vision this time around, I, I think. And since when he put it out, I joked that it was written, designed, and illustrated by Stephen Gibson, all that, le- that left was publishing. Uh, apparently now he's uh, <laughs> decided to... He wants to take it all. Yeah, just tick off that last element of the checklist and now he's going to be the publisher of Grimslingers 2. So look forward to that when there is more information available. Mark, I do not know how IPs work. I always thought if they (laughs) purchased an IP, then no one else would make. But anyway, that being said, there's going to be a Marvel card game by Simon, or people are calling it Kamon. I don't know. I'm going to use (laughs) Simon. So it's called Marvel United, and it sounds like it's even more like uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse than Marvel Champions, where it says you actually have a set deck for each champion, there are locations. The art looks awful, but other than that... I'm gonna... Well, it, it's a matter of preference, right? Some people like super deformed and some people don't. True. I guess I'm the one that does not. I don't like it either, but... So I'm going to be interested to see how it plays. It just seems like all of a sudden there's all these superhero card games trying to emulate the one only one that matters. But anyway, <laughs> it's another Simon Eric Lang Marvel card game. It will be fantastic. Well, yeah. look, I, I just finished talking about how I completely dismissed an Eric Lang Thulu game by Simon, and I turned out to kind of enjoy it. So maybe next year I'll be saying the same thing about... What, what's this one called again? Marvel United? Marvel United. Yeah. I, I mean, I even have less enthusiasm for Marvel than I do about Cthulhu, if that's even possible. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But suffice to say that Eric Lang has deserved at least cautious optimism. Although, the, oh jeez, the theme... So, uh, more information has apparently come out with respect to the Hansa Teutonica big box. People have been desperate for information ever since it was supposed to be a spiel and wasn't, and then there was supposed to be new information, and then there wasn't, and now there appears to be a listing about the Hansa Teutonica big box, and there are three crucial bits of information, tentative though they may be. Number one, a release date of May the 15th. 
English and German. Number two, a cost of 40 euros, which, quite frankly, is pretty good. And number three, the one that I was most curious about, but mostly on an academic level, was how big is the box going to be? Because you can fit all the Hansa Teutonica expansions into the original slim form box. So how big was the box going to be? But it turns out that we were only skeptical because of Queen Games' malicious abuse of the big box format. And the intention is for the Hansa Teutonica box, at least based on the information we have now, to be bigger only in terms of its height and only by about two centimeters. Oh, that's good. So if that's true, that's wonderful. If it has all the same dimensions, but but higher by two centimeters, that's great. And that'll be more than large enough to fit everything in the box. If so... This may be the first time that Big Box and Restraint have ever coexisted in the same product. So that is the news that we have now. More details to follow, I'm sure, as this turns out to be completely false and or delayed another five years on the Hansa Teutonica Big Box. Mark, there are science fiction deck builders, and we seem to love them. There is Core Worlds we love. There's Xenoshift, which we love. There's a new one by Gray Fox Games on Kickstarter right now called Tortuga. Now, you'd think that that would be some sort of pirate game, but it is... Tortuga 2199 in space. I thought anyway, it was I thought it was a game about almost 2200 turtles. Almost, okay. but not quite. But anyway, the art of this game, this is mostly cuz the art. I didn't look too much into gameplay, but the art on this particular game looks fantastic and I cannot wait to see more of it and I'm going to read more into the gameplay, so there'll be more on that later. Take a look at it cuz I think you'll love it. And lastly, there is a game called The Truffle Shuffle, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a and it's not a Goonies game, so it's a travesty. I I, I refuse to play it and or talk about it anymore. And that is all of the news. I don't think I've seen Goonies. And why it doesn't matter. Well, then you won't understand what the Truffle Shuffle is. You keep talking about all these old movies, and then I do the stupid thing and ask you, are they good? Should I watch them? And you say, oh, it's amazing. And then <laughs> you start explaining why it's so amazing, and then I start to doubt your veracity. And now, on to the feature game of the week, which is Imperial... 2030. Mark, where does this game fall into our fantastic world of gaming? So the first published design by Matt Gertz was Antika in 2005. And Imperial followed next year. This was just Imperial Simpliciter without the 2030. And this was a game about the lead up to the First World War of the great Imperial powers being messed with by international bankers. And three years after that, in 2009, he published his sequel to Imperial, namely Imperial 2030, with a different map, slightly different mechanics, although we'll get into that in a moment, but fundamentally the same idea. Investors running the great powers of the world. And now instead of the great powers of Europe, it was a global map. You had different belligerents involved. And this, the, so this was essentially the first three games put out by Matt Gertz, Antica, and then Imperial, and then Imperial 2030. Some of his other works include things like Navigador, which is one of my favorite Euro management games that he put out. And of course, his most successful design, Concordia, as I have discussed personally, and as, as I think Walker agrees, it is strange that that is the one that has gotten universal acclaim when he's put out much, much stronger games. Concordia is good, but a lot of his other stuff has been brilliant. So that's that's sort of the pedigree of Matt Gertz. Now, before Walker gives an unhelpful summary of what one does in Imperial, I'd just like to disclose that I was involved in some of the editing work for the publishing of Imperial 2030. I helped in some of the translation of the rulebook, and I wasn't involved in any of the playtesting or publishing or anything to do with the original in 2006, although I was given an early look at the print components, uh, largely because before I was an internet commenter, I just sent an incredibly gushing fan note to Matt Gertz talking about how I thought Antica was absolutely brilliant, because it is. Because it is. So what you do in Imperial 2030 is that you are corporate masterminds, Mark. You're manipulating the world powers for your own profit. And it's super fun. The key to playing Imperial 2030 is not to show your hand too early. Don't show what you're going heavy into, sort of manipulate the map as a whole. Don't try to, you know, zone in on one country the whole time. Make sure you make allies, but not between countries, just allies amongst, you know, your corporate brethren. You have to show that they have invest invested interest in helping you and your little plot. You want to make certain countries worthy to investment and then you send them out in the world even maybe let them go to other players and then support them from the shadows and and you know bankrupt everybody else making the little child that you made so so early on in the days you know you know go free and and 
flourish in the world. You're getting all misty, Walker. I know. It's It was a wonderful thing. Here's the thing about Imperial, and this is what I'll say to new players when I'm teaching them the game, and this is what everyone needs to understand. That is that Imperial is super deceptive in terms of how it presents itself and in terms of the assumptions that people make about the game when they see it. Because it looks like, especially the base game of Imperial, the map is more or less the same as Diplomacy. And the map of Imperial 2030 is more or less the map of Risk. And people look at it and they assume it's something like a dudes on a map game. And it is not a dudes on a map game, much less it is it a war game. And in fact, if you play it like one, you're going to lose and you're going to lose badly. Well, that's the main problem with it, right? Is not only does it look like Risk and have a map like Risk, it also has like ships and tanks. So it definitely gives off the vibe that you're about to play a Risk type game. And most of the actions are about manipulating production and military forces. The actual crux of how you win is about maximizing profits, and that only really relates to one action in particular and then another action secondarily. And what in terms of it is an investment game, a lot of Euro uh, gamers who have not played 18xx games look at it as an investment game, and then they make a different mistake, which is they get too attached to the countries that they are quote-unquote dealt or that they start the game with. And much like if you play it like Risk, you're going to lose and lose badly. If you get it too attached to a country, you're going to lose and lose badly. And in that way, it actually shares a similarity with Tigers and Euphrates, where you have to remain flexible and you have to recognize, I'm just renting this patch of dirt. I'm not in this for the long haul necessarily. Yeah, well, the key thing you have to know in Imperial is the fact that you don't get a turn, all right? Every country gets a turn and they go through, they cycle through every country in an exact order and it just happens to be whoever's controlling that country at the time is going to be able to do something. So as soon as you get that in your head that you don't get a turn, these are going to cycle through over and over again. And if you happen to control one when it's time for it to go, then you get to decide on what it's going to do. There's a disjunct between the nations and the players. The players are the, the ones being controlling the nations. And that lends itself to a certain degree of fluidity and malleability, and we'll talk about that. It also leads to the other big package of how Imperial can be deceptive, because you have to internalize very early on, and if you're not used to 18xx, this can be very, very unusual, the difference between your money and the country's money. And even if you have it in your head that even though I've invested heavily into this country, I, I, I'm not necessarily self-identified with them. You might start thinking, well, they need to get ahead. I, I should spend some money to help them do that. No. The circumstances under which it makes sense for you to give money to help a country out is so fringe that now the rules allow for it, but almost always it is a mistake. This is all to emphasize one of the things that I'm going to come back to later. It can be a very unforgiving game and a very disorienting game for new players, precisely because it confounds a lot of intuitions that you might have of games of this ilk. Yeah, it's totally unique and different from any other experience that I, I think I don't, I can't think of any other game that it, that I can compare it to. The, the only, honestly, the only one that I, I venture to compare it to is an 18xx game, but that's a distant compare, calm down. I can hear a whole bunch of train gamers losing their minds and tearing out their hairs and talking about beat, but, but, but train obsolescence and rusting and, and, and stock dumping. It's like, no, it's not an 18xx game, but I'm just saying in that sense of, of this disjunctive identity of knowing that you are here to suck these, these countries dry as though they were rail companies and being indifferent to their overall fate because you care about number one, which is your coffers and not their coffers. In that sense, it is similar to an 18xx game. But given that that's the closest comparison, you're right. That just underscores its uniqueness because of how different it is from 18xx games. Yeah, I just want to make sure people are aware that, that every country has their own pile of money and that's separate from and the pl each player has their own pile of money and i want to make sure everyone understands that it's all completely separate you want to worry about because that's victory points is your pile of money and there are different costs in the game some costs are borne by the countries and some costs are borne by the individual players and generally speaking it's important to note that if the country pays what you're doing there is you're depleting the coffers which sometimes is in your interest sometimes it isn't sometimes it isn't that's one of the great things about imperial that i just want to stress right right now every play is radically different because of which power ends up being ascendant i have seen all six powers essentially run the game in different versions of Imperial because the map setup isn't the salient important thing. It's all about that is just the pretext, that is just the upper layer of the actual financial manipulation that is going on underneath. And sometimes the simplest actions taken on early in the game, and let me just give one example, building a factory right at the start of the game can have a massive, massive follow-on effect. 
So every power is represented by a certain number of factories, which represents their ability to manufacture tanks or fleets, case depending. And it also determines how well they're able to generate revenue for themselves. And if you spend the early parts of the game making a country strong by building them factories, by building up their infrastructure, again, that's not your country. And if you're sitting on a weak financial stake on, say, Germany, and I notice that you spent a few turns making Germany really strong, I will take Germany from you because you've done the work for me. And I get to show up afterwards and profit from all your success. And so whether you decide to build a factory early on or just run them to the ground because you don't care about how well they do, it can lead to marvelously interesting mid and late game scenarios. And not only do you have Germany, you could also have Europe and the U.S. You could be controlling multiple factions or you could be controlling none. That That's why I love this. There's multiple strategies. You know, you don't have to – there's not, you know, take this country and build it up and make it great. It's like sort of you can, you know, diversify and try to spread across and then try to hit one really hard at the end. Or you can just go with and not control any and just sort of pick and choose. Or you can, like you said, attempt to hold one the whole time and try to make it super powerful. The decision to invest in a country can be done for so many different reasons, some of them coexisting even at the same time. Maybe you bought that country because you want to use them as a proxy war just to kneecap this other country. Maybe you bought them purely to be a buffer state between you and some of your opponents. Maybe you've bought them because you really think that they're going to do well and you're going to go over the long haul. Maybe you bought the bond just for some side income and you could care less about the overall state of them in the game so long as they pay out on a regular basis. There are so many different flexible scenarios based on this economic model, and that is why I keep coming back to Imperial over and over again, because unlike a lot of even train games, a lot unlike even some of the, whether it's a simpler game like the Cube Rails or even like the 18xx, you don't see these scripted openings. You don't see, it's like, well, this company necessarily goes to the city and so forth. Sometimes Europe is going to dominate the world. Sometimes they're going to make it all the way to South America, and they're going to conquer Chile, and you're going to wonder, how in the hell did a European army get to Chile, and now Europe is taxing so well that they're going to end the game, and sometimes they're just a rump state that have been carved to bits by the Americans and the Russians or any versions in between. It is fabulous. In that sense, of course, if you care about historicity or uh, actual verisimilitude to armed conflict, it is going to cause you to tear your hair out because wild things can happen. But for somebody who appreciates the, the flexibility of that military situation and the impact that it has on the economic situation, it's marvelous. And why I like this Matt Gertz game more than some of his other games is that he uses something that he doesn't use in most of his others. He has this rondelle thing. Right? <laughs> Let me tell you how this works. It's a, a circle of actions and you're moving your pawn around it and you can only move it a certain number of spaces and it, and it has all these different actions you can do. Kidding aside, I really feel that out of all the other rondelle games that he does, this one uses that particular mechanism the best. Really? How so? Well, because the other ones just sort of limit you how how often you can take actions. This one, it's definitely timing. You're definitely watching what all the other powers are doing. You're seeing how soon they're going to score in. It has a red line around the dial where this whole investment thing happens. We'll talk about more of that later. And I just think overall, there's multiple reasons to continually watch this rondelle and what's going on with it. And I just think it, it works really well. Well, in his other games, primarily games like Antica and Navigador, it's more about efficiency. How can I get where I'm going the fastest possible with the fewest wasted turns? That's what I mean. It's like action limiting, whereas this is a lot more going for it, I felt. Well, I don't know. I mean, to a certain extent, the the the, the rondelle in Imperial does the same thing. It's about spacing out the all-important investment and in tax actions, because if those were available every round, then the game wouldn't work. It's about introducing an opportunity cost and deciding how much tempo can you give up. So it's less about efficiency and more about tempo. And so despite the fact that they use the same, the fundamentally the same action selection mechanism, I will say that they feel radically different in Antica Navigador on the one hand and Imperial on the other hand. All right. Now that we've said that if you treat this like a risk game, you're going to lose, that there's no real combat. Let's talk about how combat works and moving around and why is there combat? Well, this it's very much this game is very much a area uh, area control game because you're going to be eventually doing this tax action, which is going to be making the country greater. So it's going to be based on the number of factories the country has and how much land they've taken over. And it's going to zoom them up this multiplier track, and at the end of the game, it'll make their investment in that country greater or better for you, I should say. 
Well, that's just it. You only care about their tax base because of how well it is going to impact your portfolio, (laughs) which, (laughs) again, just highlights the extent to which this isn't really. Yes, there's area control going on, but say that it's an area control game is a bit misleading. Russia is playing an area control game. You, on the other hand, as someone who might invest in Russia, is not playing an area control game. 100%. And the combat is very quick and easy. It's one for one. You move in. And the fact that you can share... You can coexist if you wish. The person moves in and then both sides decide, are they going to fight or not fight? If one decides to fight, then there's a fight. Then if there's one piece each, they both die. The territory won't exchange hands at that point. But if, you know, if there's someone left at the end, then it'll either stay the same or change to the new person. And it doesn't slow the game down whatsoever. And the cycle of taxation is all important. It does pay some money to the person controlling the country in some contexts, but that to me is less important. That's just icing on the cake. Mostly it's about, as you say, determining the value of your portfolio at the end of the game, but also a well-timed war can really help improve your tax base because suddenly you don't have to pay your soldiers. It's one of the most brilliantly cynical thing that happens in war games. It's like, well... I've got all these fleets, and they're just sitting around. I think I'm just going to throw them in a hopeless fight so that next turn when I tax, I don't have to pay them anymore, and then these bonds I'm sitting on will be able to pay out. Otherwise, they wouldn't. It makes me feel terrible, and it's a monstrous, monstrous act. In many ways, one of the most monstrous things you can do in a board game, but it's one of the calculations you have to take into account in a game of Imperial, and it works marvelously. The other thing about combat is the fact that there's these internal railway systems within your own country, so you're never like feel that you're handcuffed in movement you can zip through all of your own homeland without using up your movement and then spread out to make like you said your tax base bigger yeah i mentioned that there's you have the ability to try to kneecap another country because they're doing too well and you're not invested in them but again because it's just about the countries that's different from forcing someone into a kin to player elimination because let's talk about perhaps the most interesting role that one can have in imperial it's very divisive Some people love being in that position. Some people hate being in that position. That is being a stateless actor, being a player who, despite their portfolio of bonds, does not control any of the countries. Now, obviously, this happens more frequently in, say, a six-player game than it does in a three- or four-player game. But it does happen. In those contexts, that player literally only takes turns when it is time to buy stocks. But since buying stocks is the most important thing you can do in the game, that's not necessarily the end of the world. Some people revel in that situation and some people absolutely loathe it, but it's a very interesting aspect of the game. That, and it gets you back technically, if you think you're out of it, it would get you technically back into the game faster because now you're buying, you know, investment in these countries more often and it will eventually, if you wish it to, get you back in control of one of the countries. So let's talk about another divisive aspect of Imperial. And this is actually one of my biggest problems with the game. And that is that there is considerable disagreement about the quote-unquote proper way to play. The way investment is handled in the base game rules just out the box is there's a thing called the investor card. And if you hold the investor card, you get to buy something and then the investor card passes. So basically you get to invest one over N times where N is the number of players. If you do not control any countries, you get to invest all the time. Every time anyone gets to buy bonds, you get to buy one. So in that sense, you you have the advantage there. But that is not the preferred way to play for everybody. There's also a a way to play without the investor card. And in this version, after a country acts, anyone may purchase bonds in that country each time. And this sometimes slows the game down a little bit, but what it does is it removes some of the arbitrary and weird timing constraints. Like, for example, I happened to have the investor card during the last opportunity to buy bonds, and that meant that I had an advantage over people that were further downstream from me. Furthermore, based on how bond sales, bond purchases work, very rarely do new bonds return back to the supply. The only time a bond comes back to the supply is if somebody upgrades a bond. And what that means is a very valuable bond can be introduced back into the supply at a random moment. And then if you happen to have the investor card or if you happen to be stateless, you'll have first crack at that before other people do. And so in that sense, it can lead to some strange timing considerations. The in- Playing without the investor card, which is how the game was originally designed in a very serious way, kind of op- opens and frees that up. I can tell by your facial response that you've never played without the investor. I have not. And I I had a a point was the fact that I enjoy the fact the way it works now is because even though money is hidden, which we haven't talked about yet, but you can sort of see that someone might be a little strapped for cash and they're sitting with the investor card. So you can quickly move a pawn that you're controlling 
around the rondelle so he to trigger an investment, trigger an investment and he has no money there. to buy anything so you sort of you know I, I thought that was a very interesting strategy part of the game i mean some of the timing considerations are, are potentially interesting but overall i don't like the sense that it just rewards arbitrary turn order in the way that it sometimes ends up doing I, I like playing both ways. There are some people who have very strong opinions. They will only play with the investor card and will only play it without. I will play either way, but I will say I will only play with the investor card with new players because they don't know what they want to buy yet. And giving them that many choices about when to buy and how to purchase things can be overwhelming and intimidating. The other thing about playing without the investor card is you don't have the uh, fixed allocation of starting bonds. Again, with the, the, the default game, you're dealt a random initial portfolio, and that will determine what you start with. And if you play without the investor card, you have to play with an open auction at the beginning of the game where everyone can buy bonds from every country in series. You start by saying, who wants to buy any Russian bonds? And you go in turn order. It also tends to mean that at the start of the game, all those valuable high interest rate of return bonds are all gone at the start of the game, unlike with the investor card. Anyway, the, we're getting into nuances yeah, no, here. I, I, vote, I vote that that is hot garbage because it negates one of the facts here that's quick easy setup and you're almost playing immediately because because there's no troops on the board you put out the factories you deal out the initial investments like you said you collect some money put it out and you're almost ready to go you know probably about five minutes setup and if you introduce what you just said that would totally negate that but those are salient significant game decisions they're purchasing decisions it lets everyone make a whole bunch of purchasing decisions so if you're experienced players it's not part of the setup really it's part of the game i suppose <laughs> i can tell that you're definitely open to trying it someday <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah it's gonna be great very open mind did you ever play the original imperial or, or have, have you only not. played 2030 i've only played 2030 well imperial is unlike 2030 there are fewer colonies on the board and so everyone's tax base is smaller in that sense but every every power can build up to five factories as opposed to up to four factories so they have more more room for power there generally speaking though in the original uh, money is a little bit more tight and so it's a little more unforgiving. There's also a slight difference about how taxation bonuses are paid out. Honestly, I prefer the original, but it is less accessible for new players. New players tend, to, in my experience, to take better to Imperial 2030. And given that, something to stress, this is a no-luck management euro where subtle decisions, especially early ones, can have massive repercussions later on. This is absolutely a game where experience is going to predominate, especially since you have the ability, with a well-timed bond purchase, to completely steal something from somebody after they've been working hard to make it good, yeah, as no, I talked about before. Like I said, no, like you said, no luck, no hidden information except for how except much for money, money Which is a significant have. limitation. Is, but I'm just saying the fact that you can plan everything out and Speaking about planning everything out, very simple objectives, uh, very straightforward scoring, and the fact that it's all printed on the board, so you don't you're not endlessly looking up things or you know asking to pass the rulebook around. You're looking at the at the board. You can see how big a certain country is. You can go over to the table, see how you know how they're going to tax, see how how high they're going to go up. I think that's fantastic. You said earlier already it plays up to six, and I think it plays just as well at six as it does at four. It's just you know of course a timing thing. It also depends on how open people are to playing without a country. If you've got a whole bunch of people who think that playing without a country is boring and stupid because they don't quite have their head around this being primarily an investment game, well, number one, they're probably not going to do well generally. And number two, you probably shouldn't play in high player count games. So th this honestly is my biggest knock against Imperial. It can be very deceptive. Very intimidating and very unforgiving for new players, despite the fact, and possibly even because of the fact, that the rule set is so accessible. The rules are so simple, so easily taught, so easily remembered, and as you said, there's no need to refer back to the rulebook. Despite that, it can be so incredibly punishing to fall behind the curve, to not have the necessary income to be able to catch up, to see, to see something that you've built up be stolen from you and you can't take it back. If you don't have that right mindset, we talked about this also in the context of Tigers and Euphrates. This is another similarity between this and Tigers and Euphrates. You have to be able to accept, yes, this was taken out from under me. My position is completely crumbled and disintegrated. I can and should rebuild elsewhere. And honestly, it's that flexibility, that malleability, that fluidity, the, the tremendous variety of economic situations layered on top of a tremendous variety of military situations. As you said, Imperial is utterly unique and I think without peer in this particular style of game. And that is to say, Euro stock game. It is fundamentally a Euro stock game, but it's just so different from all its competitors. Quick note on some of those on the stocks like you just talked about. 
they're very interesting in the game because they sort of there's a stack of them and there's like cheap ones they go to more expensive and like you said the rate of return goes down but the ability for you to control them increases and i think the level between them is almost perfect like you can see you know the play testing that was there just you know to make it that much more expensive and the fact that you're allowed to upgrade them and the fact the limited number of them i think this all works together to make the game more interesting oh the economy is beautiful it's so finely calibrated even though as i said it's a little bit tighter in imperial and a little bit looser in imperial 2030 money is tight purchasing decisions matter and the economy moves along and everything feeds into each other like a tightly connected whole, very much the way a proper economy should. And I just like to compare this to another set of games that I think Imperial does something that other kinds of games try to do and I don't think do very well. And that is the, the notion of hidden goals. A lot of Euro games try to have hidden goals where you either aren't associated with the faction or the faction with whom you're associated is hidden in some way. I'm thinking of games like Clans. I'm also thinking of games like Archipelago where you have hidden victory conditions and they're spread out all over the game. I'm also thinking also of, of games I really like, like Dogs of War, where you might nominally have, which is also a stock game, effectively, in some aspect of its scoring. But in games like that, in a lot of those Euro games, I've, al- I've often felt that this aspect of mystery and bluffing is oversold, because a bluff is often so desperately expensive and can just help an opponent. Say you're in playing Archipelago or Dogs of War, and you have this secret victory condition. You know that you know you want to build lots of X in order for you to do well. Every time you build Y, you're devoting precious resources towards something that doesn't necessarily advance your condition and might even help your opponent. And so I've never really felt that it was properly calibrated or in your interest. On the other hand, in a game like Imperial, when you buy into a country, when you buy into a stock, you could be doing so for any number of reasons. When you do something with a country, you could be doing so for any number of reasons. You don't necessarily have have to be married to that faction or that country for even more than a given turn. And so you have this uh, this same ability of what we you, what you might want to call bluff or misdirection, but in a far more interesting and dynamic system whereby you don't have to deliberately kneecap your own position in order to keep your overall goals close to the chest. Agreed. I have one more good point and then I have the bad stuff I want to talk about. Go for it. The game is obviously better with giant flags. Now, (laughs) on to the bad stuff. We've already covered, or you've already covered a bunch of this stuff. Because the game is so different than anything else, it can be very hard for new players. Like like you said, losing control of your country, the little, you know, your nice little country you've built up, you've, you've fought out, you've controlled this, and now suddenly someone else is running it for you. Might be too much for some from some players. Like you said, you might not be in charge of anything. And the fact that it looks like a combat game, but there's no real actual combat. Then there's the point I have here where you might be suddenly in charge of several countries all at once, right? And whereas you're only in charge of one at first or maybe none, and suddenly you have to make decisions for a bunch of different countries, and that might slow the game down. That is another area where new players can often make fallacious inferences. A lot of people think, oh, well, controlling more countries is good. Well, for the most part, yes. But it's definitely not the way to win. Being well invested in a in a single powerful nation is vastly better than controlling three weaker nations or even four weaker nations. And quite frankly, very often you end yourself in a situation if your portfolio is not carefully managed, you have nowhere to go. If you control a whole bunch of neighbors, if you control an entire half of the board, where's Russia supposed to go? Where's Russia going to grab territory? except by grabbing the territory of your other places where you've invested. And you suddenly look down and realize, I've got no conquest left for me. It's kind of like playing Eclipse and realizing that you've made non-aggression pacts foolishly, and suddenly you're hemmed into a corner and your only avenue for points is too far away. So you have to be very careful about, about the friends you make, but also very careful about the enemies you choose to make. Agreed. And I know we've said that the investment is a very interesting and great part of the game, but the tokens often leads to a problem because there's large numbers and there's small numbers and and they're used for all sorts of different things. One of the numbers is used to, for how much money you're going to get when it pays out. The other one is supposed to control how much you have to pay for it and whether or not you you control that country. And it, I don't think there's ever been a game where there hasn't been an issue of which number is which. Yes, the two bond. Is the two bond the bond that costs $2 million or is it the $4 million bond that, that gives you $2 million interest? Yes. And then the uh, another one is, where does the money come from and where does it go? I.e., when you take an action that costs money or you need to pay out, is that pay out from your funds or the country funds? And when you're paying for something, often it's, it's almost always supposed to go to the country, but sometimes it's paid back to the bank. So sometimes where the money's going and where it's coming from is an issue. Absolutely. 
And my last one is it tends to get a little mathy at the very end of the game where you know it's either going to be the last round or very close to the last round. Instead of, you know, doing something that's interesting, you're like going through the bonds and saying, well, the rate of return on this particular bond is X and I'm going to, you know, math out an extra point here and a couple extra dollars there. And it just tends to either A, slow the game down or turn it more into like a, you know, an actual economic game as opposed to, you know, the, the crazy fun it was. I agree. However, this, to be clear, this is very much just the last couple of purchases. It's not like the last few rounds. It's just yes. the very 100%. last. 100%. It's usually the last round of the game. So to sum up, I think if you're a jaded Eurogamer, if you're somebody who appreciates clean mechanisms, but very sandboxy types of economies, and in that way, it's vaguely reminiscent of some of the splatter games, you know, simple, accessible rule book, but very unforgiving, directly confrontational economic play. I really think you owe it to yourself to check out Imperial. It has been my top 10 ever since it got released, and I don't see it ever leaving. It's one of my absolutely all-time favorite games. Is it accessible to new players? Yes and no. If you're able to correctly communicate to people the common pitfalls to avoid, and if people are able to approach it on its own terms, then yes, new players can engage with the elements and, and enjoy themselves. They're not necessarily going to be competitive if they're playing against experienced players. But if you let people fall into certain traps, if you let people play to their misconceptions, then yes, you can have new players have bad experiences with Imperial. But we're stressing all this, I should note, not because I've had a whole bunch of negative play experiences with Imperial of new players misunderstanding things. I'm just talking more about what people immediately see when they sit down to play the game for the first time. And I'm trying to prime you for your first experiences of Imperial if you choose to go play the game. I haven't had those negative experiences. I have had people who don't enjoy the game, but usually it is not because they feel, oh, I didn't have any control over or anything and I wanted it to be risk and it wasn't risk and what have you. So it does have its shortcomings. You do need to be aware of some of the information presentation issues that we've talked about and some of the fallacies you can fall into, but it is absolutely peerless in its type and it is so unique and such a compelling and gripping game. I highly recommend Imperial and Imperial 2030. Honestly, pick whichever theater you prefer. I agree with all of those points. I bought Imperial 2030 when it came out and it's survived all of my purges. It's still in my collection and I think it will always be there. This is actually one of those rare games that we had both, we were both huge fans of before we ever met each other. We didn't yes. introduce it to each other and we were just both independently massive fans of Imperial. Yeah, that and Tigers and Euphrates. Absolutely. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you liked it, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.